Hey there, welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Crest on this Wednesday afternoon. Eucharistic theme for today's program. We had invigorating and enlightening conversations with Dr. Jared Stout in the first hour and Tim Glamkowski, Executive Director of the National Eucharistic Congress. In this hour, we're going to spend an entire hour with someone whom I, I greatly respect in terms of his biblical work especially, and also his work as an evangelist and preacher, uh, Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is the author, most recently, of Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood, and he's also co-author with Brent Petrie of A Catholic Introduction to the Bible Old Testament. It, it's one of my go-to uh, resources when I'm, when I'm considering themes in the Old Testament, honestly. Dr. Bergsma speaks regularly for parish missions, diocesan conferences, clergy convocations, and other events nationally and internationally. Dr. Bergsma, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Marcus. Thank you. Oh, no problem at all. It, it's uh, quite frankly an honor to be speaking to you again. So, uh, well, my how, to be how, how, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch with your work, if they want to get in touch with you and, you know, ask questions or learn from you? Sure. Easiest way is catholicbibleteacher.com. That will redirect to my website, johnbergsma.com, but it's hard to remember how to spell Bergsma. Mm, okay. So catholicbibleteacher.com will get you to my resources. You can send me a message and I'll get back with you. All right, that's fantastic. Now, I also have to comment on the oxymoron here, catholicbibleteacher.com. There's something very wrong with that sentence. What do you think it is? <laughs> Catholic Bible teacher? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm Catholic and I teach Bible, so that oh, makes sense to me. <laughs> I, 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 pardon the humor, it's convert humor. You, you, you know what that's like. Yeah. Every, every time right, I right, preach right. at a... Uh, the, at a retreat or a conference or whatever, I always I always tell people, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm speaking to Catholics, so I know you didn't bring your Bibles, but share with the convert on your left <laughs> or the revert on your right. Right. <laughs> sure. So, well, so, I, I carry a I carry a New Testament with me, and I learned to do that from the man who converted me to the Catholic faith. He was a Bible toting Catholic himself, carried a New Testament for devotional reading, and used to pull it out and quote from me. Uh, when I would, you know, attack the Catholic faith. So, uh, you know, I learned from a Catholic to carry my Bible. <laughs> That's outstanding. That's outstanding. I'm sure not many of us can say the same thing, but but that truly is outstanding. And more Catholics need to be Bible-taughting Catholics. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I want to explore uh, the road to Emmaus, as, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and we've got a whole hour. I'd like to go deep into the narrative. So give us an overview of what we are to expect in terms of the narrative. For those of you interested, we're going to find it uh, in Luke 24. You're going to see it from, say, verse uh, about verse 13 until verse 20. Well, actually, about 32, about 32, uh, give or take. And, and it goes on to say what they did after. So, uh, Dr. Bergsman, just you know, walk us through the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. So, we're talking about um, Easter Sunday, and it's the evening. And uh, there's these two uh, disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, it's going to take uh, maybe two hours uh, to do that walk, uh, maybe more, maybe three, depending on terrain. And they're walking along, and Jesus shows up amongst them. Uh, they don't recognize him. And uh, Jesus, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, plays stupid. Um, it, it reminds me of the old uh, uh, detective show Columbo, uh, <laughs> which starred Peter Falk, and he would, he would act like he was fumbling and didn't know what was going on. And uh, his demeanor disarmed uh, the criminals until they you know, came out with the information he needed to break the case. Mm. And so our Lord just you know, sidles up and plays stupid. And, hey, what you talking about? Oh, 
oh, well, you know, all these things that have happened. Oh, what things have happened in Jerusalem? <laughs> and then we, we get this very ironic statement where Cleophas, who, by the way, is probably uh, Jesus' uncle, um, tradition holds him to be, and I, th- I think this is correct, actually, to be the um, brother of uh, St. Joseph, mm. foster father of our Lord. So, you know, that's a dynamic there. Jesus is talking to his uncle and, uh, and an unknown uh, disciple. But Cleophas asks, are you, only, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And, of course, the irony, Marcus, is Jesus is actually the only visitor to Jerusalem who actually does know what has happened. <laughs> right. Because he's been on the inside of all the events. Right. He, he, he's the only visitor who knows more than anyone else. Yeah, exactly. He's been on the inside of all the trials, uh, all the negotiations, and, you know, the death and the descent into hell. But he innocently says, well, what things? Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and then Cleophas goes on, describes how, you know, he had these great hopes for Jesus, and uh, then, um, you know, he he was executed, uh, but then our, our women folks say that, he's, that he rose, and his tomb is empty, and 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 then and then Jesus suddenly you know kind of breaks cover and uh, and well not completely it doesn't fully real, uh, reveal his identity but he he unloads on Cleophas oh foolish men slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory and then a famous line beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by that time, it's coming to evening. They invite him to dine. Uh, he comes in to eat with them, but he begins to celebrate the Eucharist. And when he breaks bread, he blesses the bread and breaks it, gives it to them. They suddenly recognize him. He vanishes. They say, "Where our hearts not burning, and they run back to Jerusalem and tell uh, the rest of the disciples that they've actually seen uh, the Lord. So, yeah, the famous Emmaus Road episode. Beautiful narrative. And and it's outstandingly profound. It it just seems like a story time for two people, but there's a lot going on there. And I want to comment very briefly before we get deeper into some of the themes. Uh, so we're looking at Luke 24. Uh, the narrative begins on verse 13, and it continues on until 32. 33 is when they go back to the rest of the apostles. Uh, verse 27, you know, as you mentioned, the famous, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them, in all the scriptures, the things that were concerning him, wouldn't you, I mean, oh gosh, you know, as a, as a fellow scripture scholar, what wouldn't you have paid to be there, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. You know, I, P- Peter, you, uh, Marcus, you may know that uh, uh, I teach salvation history for a living at, at Franciscan mm-hmm. University, and uh, my, my usual uh, uh, approach is uh, to draw stick figures of uh, the great covenant mediators throughout history, so Adam and Noah. Oh, yeah, I, Noah I was Abraham. there at the seminar you gave at an Ave Maria University. <laughs> you did that for all of us. I was not <laughs> expecting that, but that was brilliant. <laughs> sure. So I like to joke with my kids when, when I teach this passage that, you know, Jesus pulled them over to the side of the road, and he takes out a stick, you know, and he gets to draw in the, in the dust, you know, his little <laughs> stick figure, your Adam on Mount Eden, you know. So anyway, um, yeah, not seriously. He, he didn't seriously do that. But uh, but many of the same passages, in all seriousness, many of the same passages that that I um, I appeal to and teaching about the great covenants. I'm sure that the Lord um, uh, addressed and uh, and brought up 
when instructing the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Mm-hmm. And I guess also what irks many people is that this whole thing is contained in one sentence. Like you couldn't have given us details, Luke. Like like a lot, <laughs> a lot more. He, he packed the whole thing into one sentence. And beginning with Moses, he expounded the entirety of the scriptures. Right. <laughs> I know. It's so frustrating. Uh, what we want to give to be to be back there and be a fly on the wall to listen to that. Right. So, okay, so uh, l- let's, let's go into uh, some of the more thematic things. Why are they going, uh, why are they on this road uh, to Emmaus? Why are they going to Emmaus? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it seems like uh, th- it's a dispersal of the uh, disciples uh, from Jerusalem in the wake of our Lord's uh, death. And uh, so this kind of, you know, they're, they're heading back off to uh, their, their normal lives, you know, not knowing what to do at this point. You know, we had such great hopes for Jesus. So that would be, you know, it seemed to be the proximate historical explanation. Do you see another uh, dimension in that, Marcus? Uh, I mean, the, the opposite direction would be uh, heading back to Jerusalem. So uh, they're escaping after what has happened to their Lord, right? Mm-hmm, Indeed. Uh, and it, I mean, this is another thing to comment on. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's hexacontastadios. It, it, it's far. It, it's uh, 60 stadia. Or in, in my Dewey Reams, it says 60 furlongs. Like, this was a distance. They were trying to put as much distance as possible between them and Jerusalem because all that they'd hoped for in three years, I, I guess it was gone at that moment. Yeah, it's, it's you know, again, we... You know, we, we, it's hard to imagine the the feeling of catastrophe on the follower, followers of our Lord uh, in the wake of his death, uh, when all their hopes seem to be dashed. So, our Lord really is coming to these two disciples a, at a time when their hopes are at such great, at such low ebb, when uh, all that it seems like they've been working for for three years and uh, or more in in ministering with their Lord uh, has come to an end. And, and what do we have to show for it? So, yes, it's, it's heading off to a distant place. Let's get away from Jerusalem. Uh, let's try to forget this and maybe move on with our lives. Now, very quickly, you mentioned how Jesus, quote-unquote, plays stupid, but he also is, quote-unquote, in disguise. Their eyes were held. Scripture's very clear about that. Their eyes were held from beholding who he really was. Why is that? What's going on there? Right. Well, in our Lord's resurrected body, uh, he seems to be able to control his appearance, and not only in this episode in Emmaus, but in others as well. Notably in John 21, where he appears to the disciples by the, uh, in, in Galilee and recapitulates that miracle of uh, the miraculous catch of fish that he performed in Luke 5 when he first called them. Um, there, too, he prevents himself from being recognized. So uh, our, our Lord's resurrected body has these uh, transcendent properties to it, and uh, he can control uh, how he appears to them. And, and he's holding back because uh, it's really a pedagogical uh, move, I would argue, Marcus, that he wants them, first of all, to understand his identity from the Scripture. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, uh, as it were, want to you know, have a spoiler uh, immediately by just appearing and uh, and so he he wants this teachable moment where they don't fully recognize him yet, and he gives he has the opportunity to explain to them how his presence and his ministry are the fulfillment of the sacred scriptures. And then when they be, when they have begun to grasp that, then he can come with it 
and and reveal his identity and then bring it all to a close. But it's a brilliant piece of pedagogy. He doesn't reveal the answer until the proper time. Something like a Socratic method, which he's been using throughout his ministry, mm-hmm. in enabling uh, you know his his disciples to put to put a scriptural two and two together to come up with four and recognize his Messianic identity. Right. And, and that, I, I think that, that's the real theme that, that we need to dial into, right? It's not so much how we understand it was by means of his resurrected body and he possessed the capacity to do so. It's the why. And Cornelius, Cornelius Alapide, you know, he, writing in the early 1600s, he comments exactly on that. He, held, he withheld his appearance from them because they were talking because they did not know him. They, they, they had been with him for three years, but they still didn't understand. They still did not know him. And it was only when, at the breaking of the bread, that they saw everything come to this great culmination that their eyes were opened. So uh, we're going to continue on with Dr. John Bergsma, talking to Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on April the 19th, this lovely Wednesday afternoon, talking to Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're discussing the road to Emmaus. So, uh, Dr. Bergsma, let's continue the narrative. I want to I want to ask you, there are some prevailing theories about the identity of the unnamed uh, person on the road to Emmaus. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I know the church fathers posit it might have been Cleopas' son, and they posit it was Simon, the, the, the person who, who succeeded James as Bishop of Jerusalem. I just want to hear some of your thoughts in terms of scholarship. Sure. Well, two proposals that I've heard that are intriguing are, one, that it's Luke himself, uh, and this is how he knows of this event that's not recorded by any of the other Gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see, you know, this kind of this unnamed second uh, person in the narrative in, in other places in the New Testament as well. For example, in uh, John chapter 1, uh, the unnamed second disciple besides Andrew, who um, leaves off from John the Baptist to follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's mm-hmm. often thought to be John the Apostle, the author. So that's one possibility. And another that's advocated by uh, Tim Gray and others is that it is uh, Cleophas' wife, who is, who's married, the mother of James and Joseph, mm-hmm. and, um, in, in which case there's a, there's a, a beautiful kind of um, uh, ironic connection with the Garden of Eden, because towards the end, it speaks of their eyes being opened, and they recognize him, and that this seems to be a reversal then of the eyes of Adam and Eve being opened to recognize their shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we have this kind of uh, theme of uh, a new Eden, where remember how uh, in Genesis 2, it speaks of the voice of God uh, walked in the garden, That's the, the Hebrew avails itself of the translation that... Um, not that they heard the sound of the Lord walking, but that the voice of the Lord was walking. That's right, the, the call of the Lord, yeah. Yeah, the call of the Lord, which is one of these fascinating passages that seem to personify uh, the Word of God, you know, before the fullness of the New Testament revelation. And so the fathers understood that to be, um, you know, the second person walking there in the garden, and then um, in the wake of their eyes being opened. But mm. here we have the second person walking with, perhaps, this couple, if uh, Gray's proposal is correct, 
um, and then their eyes are opened at the at the end. So those are those are some theories. We, we don't know, uh, but both those options are intriguing. Right, right, truly. And this is the first time I'm hearing about the notion that it might be his bride. But uh, if Grace's proposal is right, there really is a very beautiful uh, circular fittingness to, to tying that loose end up in Genesis, if you will, you know, the, the later part of Genesis 2. So uh, uh, let, let's move on from there, right? Uh, Jesus walks with them. He expounds the scriptures to them. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus, I mean, this is how the verse reads. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things that were concerning him. So that means in all the scriptures, this is not to be taken for granted, in all the scriptures, all of the prophetic realities of scripture possess an inherent messianic undertone. That's correct. You know, all the way from the very beginning, where, um, you know, the, the creation of the first man in the image and likeness of God, himself as, a, you know, Adam himself as a type of the one who is to come, mm-hmm. who is in the image and likeness of God, if it, it is if it is not the eternal Son. So, you know, we could say that from the very beginning, the human race was made in the image of Jesus. And, um, and, and it only continues from there. Uh, both in, in typology, which is, you know, foreshadowing through image, or prophecy through image, we might describe it that way, mm-hmm. or through explicit prophecies, like in 3.15 of Genesis, where we have the prophecy of the, uh, the seed of the woman. And right. Who could the seed of the woman be, if not the only human being who is only the seed of a woman, because no man was involved mm-hmm. in his generation. Yep. And so we think that these, are, these, these would be early passages that our Lord would refer to. But yes, since, since we're made in the image of Jesus, in a, in a, in a, um, in a sense, you know, it, it's, it's natural that the entire narrative of Scripture uh, has, as you say, this kind of inherent uh, messianic uh, direction to it. Right. And and that's one of the real keys to unlocking the mysteries found in every page of the sacred scriptures, that when we're looking at this work, it's not just literary, that, that there's a certain liturgical reality to it. This is not just context, it, it, it's Christological, and it, it's not just typography, it's, it's typological. The whole thing points to this person of Jesus Christ. That's true. Uh, in so many ways, uh, there's so many anticipations uh, throughout scripture of, of God's Word uh, becoming a person. You know, I even think of the entire wisdom literature, which is, you know, maybe a third of the Old Testament, um, so powerful because, it, you know, in the wisdom literature, wisdom is personified as a person with whom you want to fall in love. And uh, even though the, the gendered imagery is towards the feminine, mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, the, the Church Fathers boldly uh, took these images of, uh, of Lady Wisdom, the personal instantiation of, of God's of Sophia and his Logos as referring to uh, the Messiah and fulfilled in Christ, the Logos who had become flesh. So uh, indeed, you know, the, the Old Testament is, is, is a book with a very unsatisfying ending um, that, that kind of stops uh, with a tremendous longing, a, a, t- a tremendous surge towards the future, uh, towards one who will wrap up all the loose ends of the narrative. Uh, and and we see that, of course, in Christ. Right, right. And that's truly profound. I remember in um, 
the, the supplementum of the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas actually touches on that, and I, I, I've presented that to certain professors, and they find that startling to imagine that on the one hand, it is completely biblically accurate to see Christ as bridegroom, because that, that's, a, that's a primary image that he embodies. But on the other hand, he is truly at the same time the perfect bride, and, and, and there's, there's a certain kind of uh, a fullness of, of the bridal reality in as much as uh, he receives of himself all of the life of the church into himself and nurtures it. And, and, uh, and maybe that's theological speculation that's getting into the weeds, but there's a certain kind of a beautiful reality to the interpenetrating marital mystery that we're seeing here. It, there is. And even in Ephesians 5, when, uh, you know, simultaneously St. Paul is describing the reality of Christian marriage as well as the nuptial union between Christ and his church, he speaks of the bridegroom nourishing and cherishing his bride. And if you do a word study on the Greek words there, you find that that nourishing comes from the Greek word for breastfeeding, mm. and the cherishing comes from the uh, Greek word for brooding eggs in a nest. And so, they, you know, as you say, there's, uh, there's this maternal imagery, that, that maternal, ma- maternal care that the bridegroom is expressing towards the bride, so it really cha- challenges some of our categories there. But, uh, but you're right. I, I think it's, it's along a similar theme of, of what you point out from Thomas, that yes, bridegroom, but also having these bridal qualities. Right. And, you know, that really also extrapolates a lot of what John Paul II tried to make come alive in his uh, great phenomenological magnum opus, The Theology of the Body. Um, beginning with cycle one itself, you know, he starts talking about the, the masculine genius and the feminine genius, but the, them having this almost interpenetrating reality. So the masculine genius is not devoid of the good attributes within the feminine genius and vice versa. Absolutely, and I think we see that balance, you know, in St. Paul's teaching on marriage as well, where both, uh, both the wife who entrusts herself in all things to her husband, hupotasso, which I like to uh, translate as entrustment, um, and uh, she, she images Christ who entrusts himself completely to the hands of his Father, and likewise the bridegroom imitates Christ as he lays down his life for his bride, even to the point of sacrifice, as we see in Ephesians 5. So both, uh, both couples, one in a masculine and one in a feminine mode, uh, nonetheless are both being Christ towards each other, mm-hmm. and that's what makes marriage a sacrament, because it's a, a means of grace, and the, you know, that's the only sacrament in which lay people act as the ministers of the sacrament, right. act in persona Christi, husband acts in, as a person of Christ towards his wife, and she towards him. And uh, it's so beautiful how our Lord has elevated that natural reality of marriage to an image of, uh, of the covenantal union uh, between himself and his people, which is really the story of the Bible. Yep. It's really the story that he was sharing with them on Emmaus Road. Yep. And that's outstanding. And at, as is pivotal to every marriage is the embracing of suffering that's necessary. So I want to draw back to this theme of, of the Scripture speaking of the Christ. Anyone who had studied the Old Testament, the the, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, uh, and, and the Ketuvim, w- would be able, and uh, well, the Tanakh in general, right, would be able to know that Isaiah fifty two fifty three speaks about the suffering servant. But it seems like almost all of Israel, especially the apostles, did not seem to anticipate the suffering of the Messiah. This is true, and it's remarkable, and we would love to understand what they thought of these passages not only of Isaiah 53, but also passages like Daniel 9, which speak of 
Messiah being cut off and having nothing. Mm. Um, and as, you know, also Isaiah 50, uh, 4 through 7, which speaks of uh, God's, suffering, God's servant giving himself uh, to those who pluck out the hair and his back to those who beat him. Again, we would love to understand um, how uh, ancient uh, Israelites and the ancient Jewish tradition understood these, but when we look uh, for these passages to be explicated in, for example, sources like the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. we come up with nothing. Yep. We just don't have commentary on them. It seems like uh, the ancient Jews were befuddled, I, I suspect, by them and avoided uh, you know, re- really uh, embracing or, or, you know, grappling with what could be meant by these mysterious prophecies that in- seem to indicate that God's anointed one would, uh, would, would suffer persecution and even death. Especially since it's so antithetical to the notion of, of, of this glorious Davidic king to come and sit upon the eternal throne that was prophesied in Second Samuel 7. Indeed. But, you know, if, uh, if they could have seen, I mean, we, you know, we can't criticize them because we're looking in hindsight. Um, but if, if they could have, uh, you know, along with that glorious image of the Davidic king, understand that uh, the Psalms, all of the Psalms speak of the Messiah. And so many of the Psalms, especially the majority of the Psalms in Book 1, are laments about uh, David's sufferings. And if indeed his greater son is going to experience and, and manifest his own ex, uh, the, the experiences of David himself, then it, it implies that this suffering is going to uh, be recapitulated in the life of the son of David, uh, the one who comes to restore all things. And, and you know, that, 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 that's truly outstanding, because on the, on the one hand, he is priest. On the other hand, he is Paschal sacrifice. On the one hand, he is king. On the other hand, he is sacrificial victim. On the one hand, he is glorious. On the, on the other hand, he is kind of gorily massacred for the sake of our redemption. And yet that is his glory. That's when he's lifted high, that all men may be drawn to himself. We're going to continue this conversation with Dr. John Bergsma at the, uh, toward the end of this hour in the ter- third segment. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on April the 19th. This Wednesday afternoon, talking, talking to Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's a brilliant scripture scholar and covenant theologian. And you can find his work on catholicbibleteacher.com and that's going to direct you to his website, johnbergsma.com. So, Dr. Bergsma, let's pick up where we left off. We were talking about Christ as a suffering servant, and we've come to what would, what could only be called as the culminating point of the entire road to Emmaus experience, which is they, they asked Jesus to abide with him. And I'm going to start by reading the verse here. This is verse 29, chapter 24 of Luke, verse 29. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And he went in and abided uh, and to abide with them. And for those of you who do Greek word studies, th- that same word, Dr. Bergsma, menon, uh, men, meno, menon, uh, 
please abide with us. Well, Christ had used that specific word before, somewhere else before, in speaking about his Eucharist. There's a kind of Eucharistic anticipation here. John 6, 57, he says, Well, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abide in me and I in him. The exact same verb. So let's start there and then dive into the, the, the Eucharistic event to follow. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we see these interesting connections between John and Luke, and uh, there are many of them. But that idea of remaining with, that's that, uh, that gift of presence. And it, it, it's such an important theme in the Gospel of John, uh, from the very beginning, where uh, John the Baptist is told by the voice of God that the one on whom he sees the Spirit descend and remain is the one, uh, is the Messiah, in other words. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that actually harks back to David and David's experience in 1 Samuel 16, where, where it says that after he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, um, the Spirit rushed on David from that day forward, David being the only personage in the Old Testament on whom the Holy Spirit descends and then remains. Mm-hmm. And so we've got that Davidic theme. So right. Jesus, the greater son of David, is the one on whom the Spirit comes down and remains. And then and John is the one who remains likewise. As we think of the end of the Gospel, one of the last things said in the Gospel is when uh, Peter asks, what about this man, referring to John, who's following them as they walk along the Sea of Galilee post-resurrection? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, what about him? If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so th- this, th- this beautiful theme, there's, there's wordplay, but it's a th- theological development uh, throughout the Gospel of John, is that um, uh, the Father has given us Jesus in, in order that God's presence may remain with us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Eucharist as ways that he remains with us. And then we're called to reciprocate God's remaining with us by remaining with God, remaining in him. So this this beautiful reciprocity that God is in us uh, through the Spirit, and yet we're called to remain in him. So all of that is, is, is you know, is brilliant. And, and we see that Eucharistically in this, uh, this conclusion of Luke 24, mm-hmm. where he goes in to remain with them. As you say, it's this anticipation. And then uh, in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Right. And I would just remark, Marcus, that that was an authoritative gesture. In fact, we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls that when, when the, uh, the Essene Jews would gather for their sacred meals, everyone had to wait for the priest to take the bread mm. and bless it yep. and distribute it to everyone there. And, and so, you know, if we're reading this with Jewish eyes, Marcus, this is a priestly act mm-hmm. that our Lord is doing, an, an authoritative act at a, at a sacred meal. Takes, bre- uh, takes, blesses, breaks, gives... This is the language of the Last Supper, uh, also the language of the feeding of the 5,000. All of these events are connected. Right. The 5,000 is an anticipation of the Eucharist. Obviously, the Eucharist is instituted in the Last Supper, and now here is a post-institution uh, celebration of the Eucharist by our Lord. Uh, blessed breaks, gives to them, distributes to them, and then their eyes are opened and they recognize him. Right. And, you know, as many commentators have pointed out, Marcus, this whole narrative is, is a kind of mystagogy of the Mass. Mm-hmm. Because do we not have the liturgy of the Word as they're walking along the road and listening to the Scriptures be expounded and shown how they find their fulfillment, 
in Christ. And then when they come uh, to uh, to the home in, in the evening, this is the now the liturgy of the Eucharist proper mm. as Christ celebrates for the for them. And you know, you and I are both converts, and um, I, you know, I, I think that you probably have had the same experience that I did. You know, when I when I first initially converted to the church, I did so for the sake of the sacraments. But what I did not expect, Marcus, was that uh, my understanding of the scriptures would would take off. Oh gosh, uh, yes. Would would, would be tur- would be turbocharged. Would, yep. would would change from black and white to to full technicolor after becoming Catholic. I thought that I understood the Bible pretty well already. I I didn't feel it wasn't a felt need. I, right. I didn't think that I needed to understand scripture. But once I began regularly communing in the Eucharist and then reading the scriptures as well, oh my gosh, how 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 transforming that was as the the Bible came to life in full color as you begin to see sacramental imagery everywhere within scripture, understand this sacramental economy that goes back to the Garden of Eden and how uh, Christ in the Eucharist is a fulfillment of the of the um, the the fruit of the tree of life, the manna in the wilderness the eschatological banquet spoken to the prophets, etc. And so and so their eyes being opened when they receive the Eucharist, I think that really speaks to us, Marcus, about how uh, regular communion in the sacraments enlightens the intellect so that we better under, understand divine revelation mm-hmm. and can recognize the Lord there. Oh, absolutely. And that's why St. Augustine has that outstanding phrase that if we do not uh, feast at the table of the Word, we ought not feast at the table of the Eucharist, because our, our hearts are meant to be set afire. I mean, if if Luke's words are to be taken a, as genuinely as they are, verse 32, chapter 24, verse 32, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke in this way and opened to us the Scriptures? So our hearts are supposed to be set aflame when we hear the Word proclaimed, and it's really the reception of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who who is the Word made flesh that illuminates us to understand that which we have heard and study and contemplate. Christ makes the Scriptures come alive to us through constant, fervent reception of the sacraments. Yes, indeed. You know, and it's it's not just the intellect, but as you point out, the heart burning. I mean, there's a passion. We're meant to be transformed, uh, transformed by this experience of our Lord in the Word and in the Scriptures, and it's meant to affect the whole person, uh, Peter, as you, uh, I'm sorry, Marcus, as you, as you well know, the whole person, the intellect, the will, and the affection. Yep. And we see that involved in, in, in this experience of Christ through the Word as they've been walking the, in the road, and now through the sacrament. I got to tell you, Doctor Bergsma, my first Easter vigil after coming back into the church, I immediately joined a Catholic missionary organization, and uh, I was sent to Singapore. And this was my first Easter vigil. Yeah, coming back into the Catholic Church, I came back on December the eighth, uh, twenty twenty. And I'm sitting there, and this is my first. I, I I hadn't even looked up the readings beforehand, you know. I I just told myself, you know, I'd like to go to this Easter Vigil liturgy, and and I went there, and I heard them expound <laughs> reading after reading, and I, my mind was blowing up. I, I I was jumping in my seat. I was looking around at everyone, and they all looked like they were falling asleep. And I wanted to wake them up and go, "Do you have any idea what the church is doing here?" <laughs> I mean, all the covenants are being portrayed throughout. Like, like this, this, this is probably what Jesus did on the road 
out to Emmaus. He expounded everything from the Adamic covenant all the way to the culminating point of himself. He not only is the light of the world, he's the fulfillment of covenant reality. And what we have in the Eucharist right now is a true taste, but still a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we are to receive because in him is our covenant fulfillment for eternity. And, and that, yeah. that, that's explicated in the Easter Vigil. So, no, I completely get what you mean. I didn't even know that the church could be this rich in sacred scripture until I came home. <laughs> Amen to that. You know, and, and uh, uh, Pope Benedict XVI said in his inaugural sermon at po- as Pope, when he sat down on the chair of St. Peter in, in St. John Lateran, he gave a homily, and in that homily he said, if we, if we do not embrace uh, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, we fail to understand Scripture. Mm. And I, I read that homily, and at the time I thought, well, that seems like a bit of an exaggeration. Um, you know, can't, can't we understand many things about Scripture, even if you don't embrace the real presence? But in, in subsequent years, uh, pondering on that, I realized, no, he's actually right, that if you don't embrace the real presence, if you don't see the significance of the Eucharist, which really is the new covenant. I mean, Jesus says, right. this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Absolutely. That's the Eucharistic blood. So the Eucharist is the new covenant. That is the goal of salvation uh, history. That's the goal of the Bible, which is a sequence of covenants, as, as you mentioned. And so if you don't see that this culminating covenant is Christ himself in the sacrament, then it's like fumbling at the two-yard line. It's like running that, that kickoff all the way back, and you get almost to the goal line, and then you just fall flat on your face, and you never cross. Right. right. And, and, and so, to, you know, this is, uh, you know, as, as I like to say, you know, the whole Bible is a menu pointing towards the meal, which is the Eucharist. Yeah. And, and what, uh, if, if you're reading the Bible all the time and you think that, that being a Christian consists of knowing the Bible and experiencing the Bible, but you're not partaking of the Eucharist, then you're like the person who goes to the Chinese restaurant reads the whole menu, and never orders General Tso's chicken. You know, what, is, what is going on here? Why, why are you so fascinated with the menu? And I love the menu. I've got a doctorate in menu studies from the University of Notre Dame. But uh, I love the literary structure of the menu, and it's different languages and all. But, but, but I know that the menu points to something. It points to the experience of Christ in the sacraments. And this is what Cleophas and his companion were learning experientially, on, on the first Easter Sunday. And and you touched on a really important theme there. You know, it's funny, I, I use that, that menu banquet analogy all the time. I, when I came back to the church, I was on fire, but I was also very angry at Catholics, whom I had previously attacked as an anti-Catholic Protestant. That I, and I was angry at them for not giving me what they had. You know, I, I'd like, I told them, I was preaching from the menu. You guys were born before the banquet. You robbed me of this, right? And then I realized, well, when you're born before the banquet, you, you never starved. And if you don't know what it means to be starved at that banquet, you don't know just how much you ought to appreciate it. That's so true. And, and this is one of the mysteries of suffering. You know, the, the Lord withdraws his presence from us in various ways in, in the spiritual life in order that we come to a greater love and a greater appreciation uh, of him in his myst- mysterious pedagogy to draw us in, into deeper love than deeper love than we have the courage to choose for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Marcus. Exhortation, Dr. John Bergsma. We've got about uh, about a minute left in this segment. Uh, you know, th- you touched on studying Scripture that we may appreciate the Eucharist. Just, just, just give us an exhortation for everyone listening right now. Yes, absolutely. I would say, you know, there, there's no more important thing for us to be doing than, uh, than understanding the Word of God and experiencing Christ in the sacraments. 
on on his first day back from the dead, our Lord spends three hours doing Bible study Mm -hmm. uh, with these two men on the road to Emmaus. You know, there's so many other things he could have done. He could have appeared to all the major world leaders. He could have gone and had a few choice words with Pontius Pilate and the chief priest. But he chooses to do Bible study and to show that all of the scriptures point to the experience of himself in the sacraments. If that was such a great uh, priority to the God-man himself on, on the day of his resurrection, you know, what does that say about how it should be a priority in our own lives? Thank you so much. I've been talking to Dr. John Bergsma, uh, dear friend and uh, professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Check out his work on catholicbibleteacher.com. He's a brilliant scripture scholar and evangelist. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Crestor on Crestor in the Afternoon. Stay tuned as we round off the hour with some closing insights on this show on the Eucharist. <laughs> 